Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. So welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights. I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pierce. And in this episode, we're talking about modelling. So why modelling? Well, modelling is one of the key ways of better understanding changes in gene function and also what happens if you then try and manipulate gene function to predict what might happen with treatments. And so very important ways of developing treatments. And a lot of the community have been asking us about different models, what's a mouse model, what are stem cell models, and we hope to be able to answer that during this episode. In this episode, we interview Dr. Snezana Meljevic. She's a senior research fellow at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, working on iron channels and human diseases. She has published many papers on SCN2A and other genetic epilepsies, and we've had the pleasure of working with her through GETA, and she's also presented at our conferences in the past. We really appreciate her involvement and contribution to the landscape of SCN2A and the development of potential treatments. Hi, Snez. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about what you do in the lab and why it's so important for families of rare conditions. Why do you need models to research rare genetic conditions? I guess not only rare genetic conditions, but actually genetic conditions, because one of the things that we want to understand is how do the changes that we see in genes translate into what is happening in the body and why is the disease developing? So to study disease mechanisms, we always try to actually understand what is that specific change in a certain gene producing within a neuron like a cell that we are studying because it's neurogenetic disorders, or within a brain, and how does that translate to the behavioral changes, EEG changes? So can we actually, by introducing or making a model with a mutation that is identified in a patient with a certain condition, can we have more insights into disease mechanisms? Will that model reproduce the things that we see in patients? And also, will we have some kind of biomarkers or disease markers that we can then screen the therapies against? So we start with different models. So there are different ways to model genetic disorders. And uh, the simplest way is to just take some cell lines because majority of the ones that we are working on, majority of epilepsy genetics, are actually ion channel disorders. So you can nicely record currents. And we use really simple models like xenoposocytes, so frog eggs, where you can insert your gene of interest and the mutated gene, so the one that had a change found in patient, and just compare how do they behave differently in eggs? What kind of currents do they give? Uh, do they, are the currents larger, smaller? So are there any changes in biophysical properties that you can actually then use to explain what happens in a patient? But it's super simple because, of course, frog egg is not human brain still gives a lot of information, at least for the start. Also, one of the questions that geneticists need to answer, because once you have a mutation identified, it doesn't exactly always mean, even if it's a de novo, that that is the cause of disease. You kind of need a bit of functional confirmation. So you need some data to say, well, yes, that specific change in a gene does change the way that a protein is acting and that can lead to disease. So it's kind of like that functional part is really important. And I think it has become a a bit easier to to deal with 
and numerous mutations that are identified now when we um, do some predictions. So there are many programs and softwares that you can use and approaches that you can use in the meantime to look at how conserved is the, chain, the protein. Was that amino acid in an important region? But uh, unless or until you kind of measure and see something in some cellular model, you kind of don't have a, a real answer. So that's how we start. And then the next thing to do is, of course, to go to a bit more complex models. So you can use some neuronal cultures that you can, or neuronal cells. We sometimes get them like primary mouse brain cultures. And then you put your gene of interest or your mutation in and then look at the behavior. So that's one of the approaches. It's um, probably not as informative as creating a mouse model on its own, but you can, of course, then go like slowly towards the more complex systems. And then mouse models have been around to, you know, study disease since many years. They um, seem to, and the first one, so the, the first mouse models for genetic epilepsies appeared uh, when the first mutations were identified. And the nice thing that was kind of becoming obvious is that in many cases they will reproduce some of the phenotype. So like just carrying a mutation will the, the mice will have seizures and will have changes in behavior that you can study. And then you have many chances to dissect the disease mechanism. So you can look at how the mouse behaves overall. Do they have their seizures? Uh, do they are they more susceptible for developing seizures? Um, can you see any changes in the way the networks, neuronal networks and neurons connect in brain? Can you see uh, changes in, in single neuron behavior and, and then, you know, movement, uh, like more complex behaviors, how you can analyze all that and then use them to screen drugs. So how do you actually make a mouse model? There are different ways to make mouse models. Some were like there a long time. So basically, uh, you are using um, genetic approaches to modulate uh, the alleles, so the, the mouse genes. And different models that we um, use or that we can profit from can actually be, for instance, only the ones that are overexpressing a certain gene. So basically, they have their old genes and you give them a bit more of other gene and look what happens sometimes. And people have, may have seen that to give them green fluorescent proteins so then they can have uh, like green neurons or green uh, cells and you can study those. Um, the more classical method is kind of based on use of um, embryonic stem cells and that would be then injected and modified and then put back into kind of foster mom and then developed uh, into mice. That that method is actually pretty long, so that's why there were not that many models for a long time available uh, with the CRISPR-Cas, which I presume many people know what it is. CRISPR-Cas9 uh, was then introduced to, to kind of do that modification in a quicker way without need to screen for many offsprings uh, of mice that uh, that are generated in different in the other way in a previous way uh, so that has accelerated the whole uh, process and we are now able to get mice within a few months um, earlier it could have been more than a year so basically you just want to change some of the starting cells uh, in development of mice and then let them develop in the organisms and grow them in foster moms or do the embryo transfer, uh, let the mice be born and then screen that they have the mutation. 
that's how it starts. And that's for one particular gene mutation. As we know, a lot of the genetic epilepsies, there are variants within a particular gene mutation. Do you need a mouse colony or a line for every one of those variants, or can you use a model that just is a the larger mutation? Some years ago, we were happy to just start with the knockout of that gene, so you would kind of just generate a mouse model. It's a bit easier. You don't target specific part of the gene. You just remove or somehow break it down and then look what are the consequences of removing that specific gene. That did give some information, was useful, and it's and we kind of thought that it is helpful in those cases when you say that a mutation is or variant is causing a loss of function because that should sort of correspond. We have learned in the meantime that it's not always the case. Mouse models have that uh, ability to, or like as a system, they, they compensate in different ways. So they will not always develop exactly in the same way um, as the disease will develop in, in human. And we realized that in most cases, genetic disorders are one allele is mutated, the other one is wild type, so preserved. Um, and this is enough to result in a disease. In a mouse model, uh, you often need more than one mutated allele. So kind of we often study what we call homozygous, that means both allele carry mutants, and that gives a bigger impact. Where do we need to study every single mutation in a mouse model? It's probably not feasible. Uh, but there are some ways to select for the ones that are worth studying. And that is like, you know, in case of SCN2A, if you know that there are those that are early onset and late onset, or that there are some specifics about phenotypes, you can go for those. Uh, you can also look uh, which region, which part of the gene is affected, um, so or, or which part of the protein in the end, and, and is that some functionally important part, and would that help us understand maybe um, the behavior of, of the channel on its own? Like, will we learn more if, you know, if we find a mutation in some uh, region that is important for localization, let's say, in the neuron? Like, if, you, if you'd make that and, and that is broken in a patient, how can you then modulate that later to, to kind of produce uh, a counter effect and, and maybe find a therapy. So I think like it's kind of we're trying to understand or separate different mechanisms. You know, it is not possible to make mutation for hundred something variants uh, and mouse models. I mean, yeah, made with many labs and of course funds, but there is sometimes a rational behind how you select and sometimes there is not. You just, you know, you start studying and you kind of, well, let's see what the mouse model would do and you just go for it. We have a lot of genetic groups um, on Facebook and across social media, and we see lots of families or family groups raising funds to try and develop these mouse models. What's your thought on that, and how can it move the science forward? You can't make a mouse model for every single variant. If there are enough uh, groups that are involved and, you know, if we all have enough uh, funds and enough people working, of course, the more... Uh, models we make, the better we will understand the disorder. That's the hope. Uh, the thing is that we don't always work in the same way. We don't always do the studies exactly the same uh, way. But I think this is kind of improving and people are sharing and there are bigger collaborations. And um, it is just sometimes, you know, it is like a good approach to, to have more models uh, for, for a disorder. And we understand that. And it is, uh, of course, the interest of parents and interest of groups to know like what is actually happening. Um, it is more that it's not feasible from our time. So our group cannot handle more than we have. And we have already quite a few. Yes. So, um, and it's, you know, it is not a cheap thing yeah, what, what to do. What does it cost to? Um, 
The costs of generating are variable, so you know you can find always. We, we actually outsourcing, so nobody's really making mouse models anymore in house, or at least we are we are not, uh, because there are companies that can do that for you within a few months. They're just like focusing on that. You, you practically order and buy a mouse. Uh, the analysis and the costs of breeding are high because you're kind of keeping the mouse colony for a long time. You are um, paying costs per cage per week. Um, you are then doing all the studies and the analysis. So it is expensive. Yeah. Like just breeding costs per week that we yeah. are paying for our lab are, are, are huge. Yeah. Is it in the tens of thousands rather yes, than the thousands? Like ten, tens of thousands would be, yeah. And mouse models are one model. So Will, our sons, participated in a study where he had some a skin biopsy and some stem cells harvested. What sort of model does that allow you to develop? With the stem cell technologies that kind of were starting being introduced in modeling uh, diseases, that was that became an, a new approach and probably a preferred at the moment because it's a kind of more straightforward in the sense that you are, uh, by getting a skin biopsy, you're actually having a direct patient background and a studying mutation in, in that setting. It is, of course, also not cheap because uh, the whole stem cell uh, workup and, you know, just establishing a lab- laboratory and having reagents and having skilled people, um, that also requires some effort. But um, the nice and, and the advantage of that is like, first, as I said, you, you are having exactly patient background. Uh, what we then do is we fix the mutation. So we kind of turn it back to what it should be, so to the wild tab. And then you have that perfect control. So you have only removed the, the cause of disease and then can look in what uh, is the behavior of cells that you uh, derive from stem cells. So the whole process is getting skin biopsy. We get fibroblasts out of that. We are um, having collaboration with the stem cell core uh, that will then turn those cells into, uh, or we call reprogram them uh, into pluripotent stem cells. It means they now forget that they were a skin cell and can become any type of cell again. And those you can store. It's kind of a, a easy way to buy a bank. You do a bit of quality control, see that nothing else happened during the process. And then you can keep them and you can grow, you know, different types of tissues out of there if you want. But we, of course, want to study what uh, happens in epilepsy. So we are differentiating those cells into neuronal cultures. And those can be done, again, uh, either in what we call 2D, two-dimensional or three-dimensional cultures. And the three-dimensional ones are more are well-known as organoids, brainoids, or mini-brains. Um, there are two, I think, major advantages. Um, and that is first that we're working with a human biology background, which is, of course, not what we have in a mouse. And we know that some genes behave differently. Um, and uh, that also is important for development of novel molecular gene therapies because sequence, like gene sequence is different between mouse and human. So you kind of need a model that also carries actually human gene so that you can see what is the effect of a therapy that you're applying and that is specific only for human sequence. Um, and uh, second advantage is, of course, the patient background. So you have all the other modifiers and things that could influence how the mutation expresses. Um, and then, of course, you have the cells available to, you know, reproduce and, and repeat your experiments. There are, of course, disadvantages. 
And that is the, the methodology is still developing. So uh, there is a, a huge variability, uh, even within the same laboratory. If two people are doing, you know, the same work, you're still getting large uh, variation. And uh, but but it is improving. And you know, we are, we have analyzed a few variants so far. It's getting more stable. We are learning as we are doing. Um, the advantage of making three-dimensional, so mini-brain cultures, is that the protocols that are currently in use are actually enabling to look a bit into early developmental processes. So we are not only looking at, you know, ready-made brain cell, but we also look how actually those cells develop. So what happens in early stages of development? Um, you can then, you can, you know, follow the neuronal precursors, look if they're reaching the position you, they expected to reach within brain. So they kind of reproduce a bit of early brain development in a very primal way, so like yes. a very rudimentary way, but you are getting some processes that you can analyze. Plus you can then look at the activity um, and and see whether you know there's some morphological changes, whether there are some changes between groups of neurons, their localization. So it kind of gives a new tweak to the story, so it gives a bit more chance to look into early development. Does it help with safety if you're trying to develop a protein, for example, to modify gene function? I'd imagine without an organoid, you might need to actually test it in a live human mm -hmm. rather than being able to test it in an organoid and get a sense of does it work, is it safe? Yes, I think that, you know, it is going in that direction. It's I think that it, the stem cells at the moment, you can't exclude mouse models as a preclinical development because they still provide that insight in how the whole system will be affected. But um, there are, um, you know, more and more studies, including actually stem cell-derived neurons as preclinical models because of that. Yeah, because, you know, like we learned, especially in epilepsy, that uh, using just mouse models or rat models or rodent models to develop drugs was not the most productive way. So many drugs failed later when translated into uh, humans. So um, we obviously need a different type of model. So whether it's the stem cells are at that level where they are really uh, perfect predictors of the behavior, well, we don't know. We're looking yeah. into that. So, but uh, I mean, they have a good chance because we, we do see, um, some, uh, phenotypes that we kind of expect from, you know, what we see in other models. If we expect more firing, which should be in epilepsy, we do see that in stem cell models or less fire. You know, you, you can already see that that is happening. Uh, there are not that many studies on, Epilepsy in uh, organoids uh, at the moment, but um, I know that there are many happenings. So it is more, you know, that we understand how, what is the readout, what is the good readout that we yeah. can actually use to see what is the phenotype. So we've got the frog eggs, frog eggs. mouse <laughs> models, organoids, uh, mathematical modeling yeah. and prediction. What's next? What, what other <laughs> models are coming in the next five years or so? I'm pretty convinced that we're going to probably have some kind of a merging of technology and, and stem cell modeling. So that, uh, because one of the problems we have with organoids is that they get the necrotic 
tissue so they're inside because you just like grow them without blood vessels so they can only feed the cells that are in the surface so there are people trying to grow them together with some kind of a micro blood vessels and uh but but one of the approaches that you can use is make some kind of scaffolds so like use materials to grow the cells and then sort of enable that they develop in in a certain way so that you can analyze the connections between neurons where they are positioning so i'm kind of thinking that might be one of the ways we're going to go into the analysis because once you have a, a scaffold, you can actually also let it detect the and sense what is happening or stimulate. So it's kind of uh, probably one of one of the ways to, to look into that. Of course, you would like to, I mean, with, with the whole genetic and, and we now know that there are so many variants in different genes, we still don't know what, it, what each of these variants does. And in many cases it is actually necessary to do that really fast so i'm kind of also thinking maybe some kind of a platform where you could maybe use blood cell and just develop quickly some stem cell or neuron like cell uh, and and do a quick screen uh, would probably be one of the nice ways we always kind of imagined <laughs> that would be the, the part of you know if you could do that as part of diagnostics and say okay we predict this and then like they do in cancer, you then put some drugs and, and predict what would be the behavior. That would be probably the next approach. And uh, yeah, I, I think cellular models that we are currently using are, you know, they could still be tweaked, like combined with computer modeling or uh, maybe just have the faster way of producing variations and then studying their effects, like faster readouts, maybe not always one student patch clamp machine and, <laughs> and you know, two months of work, but like um, having a, a bit of um, automated workflow, more automated workflow would probably be helpful. Has having contact with families and patients with genetic epilepsy changed how you approach your work? I've been in the field for 20 years, but yeah. it's only uh, since we started working with really severe epilepsies that we kind of get that human component touch. and yeah. touch. Because yeah. earlier was, you know, epilepsy for me, I don't have cases in family. I've seen a few seizures and heard about them, but it's not like I wanted to study yeah. epilepsy. It was, you know, it's brain and how it works yeah. and what yeah. goes wrong that uh, yeah. pushed me in that direction. But then when, when we started getting, in, you know, like finding out that there are severe epilepsies, when people got really involved in personal, when you get calls from parents and you meet really sick kids, you kind of start to think, oh my God, this is really, this is it's real right. life. Yeah. Yeah. This is happening. And I think this has changed the perspective of how we do science a lot. So like, you know, the, the, the understanding in our uh, laboratory with many people, they all know these are real people we are working with. They have seen the pictures of patients they work uh, on. So, you know, kind of who's the mutations they're analyzing. So it's all become very real. I'm really enjoying all the interactions with, with parents and families and also because we can learn so much and, you know, there are little details that you sort of miss when you're just like reading or hearing from a clinician. So that, that kind of interaction, I think, does move and help and, and move things forward. So, Dave, what were the pertinent points that you got from Snizana's chat with us? So I've really found it interesting how Snizana was able to outline just the roles of all the different models that they're able to use. So simple models like frog eggs or a simple cell line, then a whole animal model like a mouse model, then a mini organ model in a human like the organoids, and then using mathematical modelling. So it's not actually an in-the-dish model, but using mathematics and how in the future they may actually be able to combine those so mathematical predictions and 
organoids to really predict what may be able to happen. It really also drove home the importance of modelling because if you can actually model what's going to happen with a treatment or what's going to happen to that abnormal gene function before you take something to human trials, you're going to be much more confident about what you're taking to human trials, both in terms of its effectiveness but also in terms of its safety. So, Dave, even though we talked about all those different models, how does one model lead to another? So there is a natural progression with modelling. So you may start with a simple model like a cell line, for example. And, you know, some of the work at the Flory in genetic epilepsy and particularly SCN2A may have been around five years ago starting with that simple type of model. But then as you start to understand what happens at a cellular level and then you want to take that into a more complex model, so a whole animal model like a mouse or a organoid human model like a stem cell organoid, that's a number of years. So that's five years down the track from a cell line. And so it does take quite a long time as you work through these gradually progressive, progressively more complex models. And so just starting with a simple cell line isn't the end of the process. There's a lot more modelling to do after that. And that's great that the Floria are moving along that process, as, as are other uh, labs around the world. Keep up to date with the latest on genetic epilepsy and developmental epileptic encephalopathies by following this podcast. Or get regular updates on SEN2A through SEN2A Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SEN2A Australia. And thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 